Inhabit October 20th reading. Our first reading for this session is on meditation from Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Our aim this week is to put together our last two practices, Bible reading and prayer. While there are a lot of different ways to meditate, we are going to focus on meditating through scripture. Below are some good passages for meditation if you can't think of any. Isaiah 30, 15 through 21, Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Psalm 51, Psalm 103, really all of the Psalms. Matthew 5, verses 19 through 21, John 1, 1 through 15, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Matthew 11, 25 through 30, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, Jeremiah 6, 13 through 15, Micah 6, 6 through 8, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and John 15, 1 through 11. The Discipline of Meditation True contemplation is not a psychological trick, but a theological grace. Thomas Merton In contemporary society, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Psychiatrist Carl Jung once remarked, hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. If we hope to move beyond the super fallacies of our culture, including our religious culture, we must be willing to go down into the recreating silences, into the inner world of contemplation. In their writings, all the masters of meditation beckon us to be pioneers in this frontier of the spirit. Though it may sound strange to modern ears, we should, without shame, enroll as apprentices in the school of contemplative prayer. Biblical Witness The discipline of meditation was certainly familiar in the authors of Scripture, to the authors of Scripture. The Bible uses two different Hebrew words to convey the idea of meditation, and together they are used some 58 times. These words have various meanings, listening to God's word, reflecting on God's works, rehearsing God's deeds, ruminating on God's law, and more. In each case, there is stress upon changed behavior as a result of our encounter with the living God. Repentance and obedience are essential features in any biblical understanding of meditation. The psalmist exclaims, Oh, how I love thy law! It is my meditation all the day. I hold my feet from every evil way in order to keep thy word. I do not turn aside from thy ordinances, or for, for thou hast taught me. Psalm 119, verses 97, 101, and 102. It is this continual focus upon obedience and faithfulness that most clearly distinguishes Christian meditation from its Eastern and secular counterparts. Those who walked through the passages of the Bible knew the ways of meditation. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. Genesis twenty four sixty three. I think of thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the watches of the night. Psalm 63, verse 6. 
The Psalms virtually sing of the meditation of the people of God upon the law of God. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate upon thy promise. Psalm 119, verse 148. The psalm that introduced the entire Psalter calls all people to emulate the blessed man, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. The old priest Eli, who knew how to listen to God and help the young boy Samuel know the word of the Lord, First Samuel three one through eighteen. Elijah spent many a day and night in the wilderness, learning to discern the discern the still small voice of Yahweh, First Kings nineteen nine through eighteen. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and heard His voice saying, "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" Isaiah six. 1 through 8. Jeremiah discovers the word of the Lord to be a burning fire shut up in my bones. Jeremiah 20 verse 9. And on March the Witnesses. These were people who were close to the heart of God. God spoke to them not because they were they had special abilities, but because they were willing to listen. In the midst of an exceedingly busy ministry, Jesus made a habit of withdrawing to a lonely place apart. Matthew fourteen thirteen. He did this not to be away from people, but so he could be with God. What did Jesus do time after time in those deserted hills? He sought out his heavenly father. He listened to him. He communed with him. And he beckons us to do the same. Hearing and obeying. Christian meditation, very simply, is the ability to hear God's voice and obey his word. It is that simple. I wish I could make it more complicated for those who like things difficult. It involves no hidden mysteries, no secret mantras, no mental gymnastics, no esoteric flights into the cosmic consciousness. The truth of the matter is that the great God of the universe, the creator of all things, desires our fellowship. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve talked with God, and God talked with them, and they were in communion. Then came the fall, and in an important sense, there was a rupture of the sense of perpetual communion, for Adam and Eve hid from God. But God continued to reach out to his rebellious children, and in stories of such persons as Cain, Abel, Noah, and Abraham, we see God speaking and acting, teaching and guiding. Moses learned, albeit with many vacillations and detours, how to hear God's voice and obey his word. In fact, scripture witnesses that God spoke to Moses, face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Exodus thirty three eleven, There was a sense of intimate relationship of communion. As a people, however, the Israelites were not prepared for such intimacy. Once they learned a little about God, they realized that being in his presence was risky business and told Moses so. You speak to us and we will hear, but let not God speak to us lest we die. Exodus 20 verse 19. 
In this way, they continue. They could maintain religious respectability without the attendant risks. This was the beginning of the great line of the prophets and judges, Moses being the first. But it was a step away from the sense of immediacy, the sense of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In the fullness of time, Jesus came and taught the reality of the kingdom of God and demonstrated what life could be like in that kingdom. He established a living fellowship that would know him as Redeemer and King, listening to him in all things and obeying him at all times. In his intimate relationship with the Father, Jesus modeled for us the reality of that life of hearing and obeying. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. John 5.19 I can do nothing on my own authority. As I hear, I judge. John 5.30 The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. John 14.10 When Jesus told his disciples to abide in him, they could understand what he meant, for he was abiding in the Father. He declared that he was the good shepherd and that his sheep know his voice. John 10, 4. He told us that the Comforter would come, the Spirit of Truth, who would guide us into all truth. John 16, 13. In his second volume, Luke clearly implies that following his resurrection and the ascension, Jesus continues to do and teach, even if people cannot see him with the naked eye. Acts 1.1 Both Peter and Stephen point to Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15 of the prophet like Moses, who is to speak and whom the people are to hear and obey. Acts 3.22 and 737. In the book of Acts, we see the, resurrection, the resurrected and reigning Christ through the Holy Spirit, teaching and guiding his children, leading Philip to new unreached cultures, Acts 8, revealing his messiahship to Paul, Acts 9, teaching Peter about his Jewish nationalism, Acts 10, guiding the church out of its cultural captivity, Acts 15. What we see over and over again is God's people learning to live on the basis of hearing God's voice and obeying his word. This, in brief forms, the biblical foundation for meditation and the wonderful news that is Jesus has not stopped acting and speaking. He is resurrected and at work in our world. He is not idle, nor has he developed laryngitis. He is alive and among us as our priest to forgive us, our prophet to teach us, our king to rule us, our shepherd to guide us. All the saints throughout the ages have witnessed to this reality. How sad that contemporary Christians are so ignorant of the vast sea of literature on Christian meditation by faithful believers throughout the centuries. And their testimony to the joyful life of of perpetual communion is amazingly uniform. From Catholic to Protestant, from Eastern Orthodox to Western Free Church, we are urged to live in his presence in uninterrupted fellowship. The Russian mystic Theopan the Recluse says, 
To pray is to descend with the mind into the heart, and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever present, all seen within you. The Anglican divine Jeremy Taylor declares, Meditation is the duty of all. And in our day, Lutheran martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when asked why he meditated, replied, Because I am a Christian. The witness of scripture and the witness of the devotional masters are so rich, so alive with the presence of God, that we would be foolish to neglect such a gracious invitation to experience, in the words of Madame Guyon, the depths of Christ. The Purpose of Meditation In meditation, we are growing into what Thomas Akempis calls a familiar friendship with Jesus. We are sinking down into the light of life of Christ and becoming comfortable in that posture. The perpetual presence of the Lord, omnipresence as we say, moves from a theological dogma into a radiant reality. He walks with me and he talks with me, ceases to be pious jargon and instead becomes a straightforward description of daily life. Please understand me. I am not speaking of some mushy, giddy, buddy-buddy relationship. All such sentimentality only betrays how little we know, how distant we are from the Lord, high and lifted up, who is revealed to us in Scripture. John tells us in his Apocalypse that when we see the reigning Christ, he fell at his feet as though dead, and so should we. Revelation one seventeen. No. I am speaking of a reality more akin to what the disciples felt in the upper room when they experienced both intense intimacy and awful reverence. What happens in meditation is that we create the emotional and spiritual space which allows Christ to construct an inner sanctuary in the heart. The wonderful verse, I stand at the door and knock, was originally penned for believers, not unbelievers. Revelation 3.20 We who have turned our lives over to Christ need to know how very much he longs to eat with us, to commune with us. He desires a perpetual Eucharist feast in the inner sanctuary of the heart. Meditation opens the door, and although we are engaging in, in specific meditation exercises at specific times, the aim is to bring this living reality to all of life. It is a portable sanctuary that is brought into all we are and do. Inward fellowship of this kind transforms the inner personality. We cannot burn the eternal flame of the inner sanctuary and remain the same, for the divine fire will consume everything that is impure. Our ever-present teacher will always be leading us into righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans fourteen seventeen. Everything that is foreign to his way, we will have to let go. No, not have to, but want to. For our desire and aspirations will be more and more confirmed, conformed to his way. Increasingly, everything within us will swing like a needle to the polyester of the spirit. Understandable misconceptions. 
Whenever the Christian idea of meditation is taken seriously, there are those who assume it is synonymous with the concept of meditation centered in Eastern religions. In reality, the two idea, ideas stand worlds apart. Eastern meditation is an attempt to empty the mind. Christian meditation is an, is an attempt to fill the mind. The two ideas are quite different. Eastern forms of meditation stress the need to become detached from the world. There is an emphasis upon losing personhood and individuality and merging with the cosmic mind. There is a longing to be freed from the burdens and pains of this life and to be released into the impersonality of nirvana. Personal identity is lost and, in fact, Personality is seen as the ultimate illusion. There is an escaping from the miserable wheel of existence. There is no God to be attached to or to hear from. Detachment is the final goal of Eastern religion. Christian meditation goes far beyond the notion of, e of detachment. There is a need for dis detachment, a Sabbath of contemplation, as Peter of Sellis a Benedictine monk of the 12th century put it. But there is a danger in thinking only in terms of detachment, as Jesus indicates in his story of the man who had been emptied of evil, but not filled with good. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than himself, and then and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. Luke 11 verses 24 through 26. No, detachment is not enough. We must go on to attachment. The detachment from the confusion all around us is in order to have a richer attachment to God. Christian meditation leads us to the inner wholeness necessary to give ourselves to God freely. Another misconception about meditation is that it is too difficult and too complicated. Perhaps it is best left to the professional who has more time to explore the inner regions. Not at all. The acknowledged experts in this way never report that they were on a journey only for the privileged, the spiritual giants. They would laugh at the very idea. They felt that what they were doing was a natural human activity, as natural and as important as breathing. They would tell us that we do not need any special gift or psychic powers. Thomas Merton writes, Meditation is really very simple, and there is not much need of elaborate techniques to teach us how to go about it. A third misconception is to view contemplation as impractical and wholly out of touch with the 20th century. There is a fear that it will lead to the kind of person immortalized in Doskoyevsky's book, The Brother Karamazov, in the aesthetic father Farapont, a rigid, self-righteous person who, by sheer effort, delivers himself from the world and then calls down curses upon it. Many people believe that at its very best, meditation leads to an unhealthy otherworldliness that keeps us immune to the suffering of humanity. Such evaluations are far from the mark. 
In fact, meditation is the one thing that can sufficiently redirect our lives so that we can deal with human life su successfully. Thomas Merton writes, Meditation has no point and no reality unless it is firmly rooted in life. Historically, no group has stressed the need to enter into the listening silences more than the Quakers, and the result has been a vital social impact far in excess of their numbers. William Penn notes, True godliness does not turn men out of the world, but enables them to live better in it and excites their endeavors to mend it. Often meditation will will yield insights that are deeply practical, almost mundane. Instruction will come on how to relate to your wife or your husband, or how to deal with this sensitive problem or that business situation. It is wonderful when a particular meditation leads to ecstasy, but it is far more common to be given guidance in dealing with ordinary human problems. Meditation sends us into our ordinary world with greater perspective and balance. Perhaps the most common misconception of all is to view meditation as a religious form of psychological manipulation. It may have value in dropping our blood pressure or in relieving tension. It may even provide us with meaningful insights by helping us get in touch with our subconscious mind. But the idea of actual contact and communion with God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sounds unscientific and faintly unreasonable. If you feel that we live in a purely physical universe, you will view meditation as a good way to obtain a constant alpha brainwave pattern. But if you believe that we live in a universe created by the infinite personal God who delights in our communion with him, you will see meditation as a communication between the lover and the one beloved. These two concepts of meditation are complete opposites. The one confines us to a totally human experience. The other catapults us into a divine human encounter. The one talks about the exploration of the subconscious. The other speaks of resting in him whom we have found, who loves us, who is near to us, who comes to us to draw us to himself. Both may sound religious and even use religious jargon, but the former can ultimately find no place for spiritual reality. How then do we come to believe in a world of the spirit? Is it by blind faith? Not at all. The inner reality of the spiritual world is available to all who are willing to search for it. Often I have discovered that those who so freely debunk the spiritual world have never taken 10 minutes to investigate whether or not such a world really exists. Let me suggest we take an experiential attitude towards spiritual realities. Like any other scientific endeavor, we form a, hypo a hypothesis and experiment with it to see if it is true or not. If our first experiment fails, we do not despair or label the whole business fraudulent. We re-examine our procedure, perhaps adjust our hypothesis, and try again. 
we should at least have the honesty to persevere in this work and to the same degree we would in any field of science. The fact that so many are unwilling to do so betrays not their intelligence, but their prejudice. Desiring the Living Voice of God There are times when everything within us says yes to the words of Frederick W. Faber. Only to sit, sit and think of God. Oh, what a joy it is to think the thought, to breathe the name. Earth has no higher bliss. But those who meditate know that the more frequent reaction is spiritual inertia, a coldness, and lack of desire. Human beings seem to have a perpetual tendency to have somebody else talk to God for them. We are content to have the message secondhand. One of Israel's fatal mistakes was their instance upon having insistence upon having a human king rather than resting in the theocratic rule of God over them. We can detect a note of sadness in the word of the Lord. They have rejected me from being king over them. 1 Samuel 8, 7 The history of religion is the story of an almost desperate scramble to have a king, a mediator, a priest, a pastor, a go-between. In this way, we do not need to go to God ourselves. Such an approach saves us from the need to change, for to be in the presence of God is to change. We do not need to observe Western culture very closely to realize that it is captivated by the religion of the mediator. That is why meditation is so threatening to us. It boldly calls us to enter into the living presence of God for ourselves. It tells us that God is speaking in the continuous presence and wants to address us. Jesus and the New Testament writers clearly state that this is not just for the religious professionals, the priest, but for everyone. All who acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord are the universal priesthood of God and as such can enter the Holy of Holies and converse with the living God. To bring people to believe that they can hear God's voice seems so difficult. Members of the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. have been experimenting in this area for some time. Their conclusion, we think that we are 20th in 21st century people. Nonetheless, we have hints that one can receive direction as clear as those given Aeneas, rise and go to the street called straight. Why not? If God is alive and active in the affairs of human beings, why can't his voice be heard and obeyed today? It can be heard and is heard by all who will know him as present teacher and prophet. How can we receive the desire to hear his voice? This desire to turn is a gift of grace. Anyone who imagines he can simply begin meditating without praying for the desire of the grace to do so will soon give up. But the desire to meditate and the grace to begin meditating should be taken as an implicit promise of further graces. Seeking and receiving that gift of grace is the only thing 
that will keep us moving forward on the inward journey. And as Albert the Great says, the contemplation of the saints is fired by the love of the one contemplated, that is, God. Sanctifying the Imagination We can descend with the mind into the heart most easily through the imagination. In this regard, the great Scottish preacher Alexander White speaks of the divine offices and the splendid services of the Christian imagination. Perhaps some rare individual experience got through abstract perhaps some rare individuals experience God through abstract contemplation alone, but most of us need to be more deeply rooted in the senses. We must not despise this simpler, more humble route into God's presence. Jesus himself taught in this manner, making constant appeal to the imagination, and many of the devotional masters likewise encourage us in this way. St. Teresa of Avila says, As I could not make reflection with my understanding, I contrived to picture Christ within me. Many of us can identify with her words, for we too have tried a merely cerebral approach and found it too abstract, too detached. Even more, the imagination helps to anchor our thoughts and center our attention. Francis de Salas notes the, that by means of the imagination, we confine our mind within the mystery of which we meditate, that it may not ramble to and fro. Just as we shut up a bird in a cage or tie a hawk by its leash so that he may rest on the hand. Some have objected to using the imagination out of certain that it is untrustworthy and could even be used by the evil one. There is good reason for concern, for the imagination, like all our faculties, has participated in the fall. But just as we can believe that God can take our reason, fallen as it is, and sanctify it, and use it for his good purposes, so we believe he can sanctify the imagination and use it for his good purposes. Of course, the imagination can be distorted by Satan, but then so can all our fa faculties. God created us with an imagination, and as Lord of his creation, he can and does redeem it and use it for the work of the kingdom of God. Another concern about the use of the imagination is the fear of human manipulation and even self-deception. After all, Some have an overactive imagination, as we say, and they can concoct all kinds of images of what they would like to see happen. Besides, doesn't the Bible warn us against the vain imaginations of the wicked? Romans 1.21 The concern is legitimate. It is possible for all of this to be nothing more than vain human strivings. That is why we so vitally why it is so vitally important for us to be thrown in utter dependence upon God in those on these matters. 
We are seeking to think God's thoughts after him, to delight in his presence, to desire his truth and his ways. And the more we live in this way, the more God utilizes our imagination for his good purposes. In fact, the common experience of those who walk with God is one of being given images of what can be. Often in praying for people, I am given a picture of their condition. And what I share and when I share that picture with them, there will be a deeper inner sigh or they will begin weeping. Later they will ask, how did you know? Well, I didn't know. I just saw it. I believe that God can sanctify and utilize the imagination is simply to take seriously the Christian oh to believe that God can sanctify and utilize the imagination is simply to take seriously the Christian idea of incarnation. God so accommodates so enfleshes himself into our world that he uses the images we know and understand to teach us about the unseen world of which we know so little and which we find so difficult to understand. Preparing to Meditate it is, so, it is impossible to learn how to meditate from a book. We learn to meditate by meditating. Simple suggestions at the right time, however, can make an immense difference. The practical hints and meditation exercises on the following pages are given in the hope that they may help in the actual practice of meditation. They are not laws, nor are they intended to confine you. Is there a proper time for meditation? When a certain proficiency has been attained in the interior life, it is possible to practice meditation at any time and under almost every circumstance. Brother Lawrence in the 17th century and Thomas Kelly in the 20th both bear eloquent testimony to this fact. Having said that, however, we must see the importance for beginners and experts alike to give some part of each day to formal meditation. Once we are convinced that we need to set aside specific times for contemplation, we must guard against the notion that to do certain religious acts at particular times means that we are finally meditating. This work involves all of life. It is 24-7, or it is a 24-hour-a-day job. Contemplative prayer is a way of life. Pray without ceasing, Paul exhorts in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. With a touch of humor, Peter of Sellis notes that he who snores in the night of vice cannot know the light of contemplation. We must come to see, therefore, how central our whole day is in preparing us for specific times of meditation. If we are constantly being swept off our feet with frantic activity, we will be unable to be attentive at the moment of inward silence. A mind that is harassed and fragmented by external affairs is hardly prepared for meditation. The church fathers often spoke of Atuum sanctum, holy leisure. It refers to a sense of balance in the life, 
an ability to be at peace through the activities of the day, an ability to rest and take time to enjoy beauty, an ability to pace ourselves. With our tendency to divine to define people in terms of what they produce, we would do well to cultivate holy leisure. And if we expect to succeed in the contemplative way, we must pursue holy leisure with a determination that is ruthless to our date books. What about a place for meditation? This will be discussed under the discipline of solitude. So for now, a few words will be sufficient. Find a place that is quiet and free from interruption. No telephone should be nearby. If it is possible to find some place that looks out into a lovely landscape, so much the better. It is best to have one designated place rather than hunting for a different spot each day. What about posture? In one sense, posture makes no difference at all. You can pray anywhere, anytime, and in any position. In another sense, however, posture is of the utmost importance. The body, the mind, and the spirit are inseparable. Tension in the spirit is telegraphed in body language. I actually have witnessed people go through an entire worship service vigorously chewing gum without the slightest awareness of their deep inner tension. Not only does outward posture reflect the inward state, it can also help to nurture the inner attitude of prayer. If inwardly we are fraught with distractions and anxiety, a consciously chosen posture of peace and relaxation will have a tendency to calm our inner turmoil. There is no law that prescribes a correct posture. The Bible contains everything from lying prostrate on the floor to standing with hands and head lifted towards the heavens. I think the best approach would be to find a position that is the most comfortable and the least distracting. The delightful 14th century mystic Richard Roll favored sitting because I knew that I longer lasted than going or standing or kneeling. For in sitting, I am most at rest and my heart most upward. I quite agree and find it best to sit in a straight chair with my back correctly positioned in the chair and both feet flat on the floor. To slouch indicates inattention and to cross legs restricts the circulation. Place the hands on the knees, palms up, and a gesture of receptivity. Sometimes it is good to close the eyes, to remove distractions, and to center the attention on Christ. At other times, it is helpful to ponder a picture of the Lord or to look out at some lovely trees and plants for the same purpose. Regardless of how it is done, the aim is to center the attention of the body, the emotions, the mind, and the spirit upon the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is um, the part that Trey underlined. The Forms of Meditation Christians throughout the centuries have spoken of a variety of ways of listening to God, of communing with the 
creator of heaven and earth, of experience the eternal lover of the world. The accumulated wisdom of their experience can be immensely helpful as we, like them, seek intimacy with God and faithfulness to God. Um, It's on page 29 of the first reading. For all the devotional masters of the Meditatio Scripturium, the meditation upon Scripture, is the central reference point by which all other forms of meditation are kept in proper perspective. Whereas the study of Scripture centers on exegesis, the meditation of Scripture centers on internalizing and personalizing the passage. The written word becomes a living word addressed to you. This is not a time for technical studies or analysis or even gathering of material to share with others. Set aside all tendencies towards arrogance and with a humble heart receive the word addressed to you. Often I find kneeling especially appropriate for this particular time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Just as you do not analyze the words of someone you love, but accept them and they are said as they are said to you, accept the word of scripture and ponder it in your heart as Mary did. That is all. That is meditation. When Bonhoeffer founded the seminary at Frinkelwald, one half an hour silent meditation upon scripture was practiced by everyone. It is important to resist temptation to resist the temptation to pass over many passages superficially. Our rushing reflects our internal state, and our internal state is what needs to be transformed. Bonhoeffer recommended spending a whole week on a single text. Therefore, my suggestion is that you take a single event or a parable or a few verses or even a single word and allow it to take root in you. Seek to live the experience, remembering the encouragement of Ignatius of Loyola to apply all our senses to our task. Smell the sea. Hear the lap of water along the shore. See the crowd. Feel the sun on your hand and the hunger in your stomach. Taste the salt in the air. Touch the hem of his garment. In this regard, Alexander White counsels us. The true The truly Christian imagination never lets Jesus out of her sight. You open your New Testament, and by your imagination, that moment you are one of Christ's disciples on the spot and are his feet. Suppose we want to meditate on Jesus' staggering statement, My peace I give to you, John 14, 27. Our task is not so much to study the passage as it is to be initiated into the reality of which the passage speaks. We brood on the truth that he is now filling us with his peace. The heart, the mind, and the spirit are awakened to his inflowing peace. We sense all motions of fear stilled and overcome by power and love 
and self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7 Rather than dissecting peace, we are entering into it. We are enveloped, absorbed, gathered into his peace. And the wonderful thing about such an experience is that the self is quite forgotten. We are no longer worried about how we can make ourselves more at peace, for, for we are attending to the impartation of peace within our hearts. No longer do we laboriously think up ways to act peacefully, for acts of peace spring spontaneously from within. Always remember that we enter the story not as passive observers, but as active participants. Also remember that Christ is truly with us to teach us, to heal us, to forgive us. Alexander White declares, With your imagination anointed with holy oil, you again open your New Testament. At one time you are publican. At another time, you are prodigal. At another time, you are Mary Magdalene. At another time, Peter in the porch. Till your whole New Testament is all over autobiographic of you. Another form of meditation is what the contemplatives of Middle Ages called recollection and what the Quakers have called centering down. It is a time to become still, to enter into the recreating silence, to allow the fragmentation of our minds to become centered. The following is a brief exercise to aid you in recollection. That is simply called palms down, palms up. Begin by placing your palms down on a symbolic indication of your desire to turn over any concerns you may have to God. Inwardly, you may pray, Lord, I give you my anger towards John. I release my fear of my dentist appointment this morning. I surrender my anxiety over not having enough money to pay the bills this month. I release my frustration over trying to find a babysitter for tonight. What it, whatever it is that weighs on your mind or is a concern to you, say, palms down. Release it. You may even feel a certain sense of release in your hands. After several moments of surrender, turn your palms up as a symbol of your desire to receive from the Lord. Perhaps you will pray silently. Lord, I would like to receive your divine love for John, your peace about the dentist appointment, your patience, your joy. Whatever you need, say, you say, palms up. Having centered down, spend the remaining moments in complete silence. Do not ask for anything. Allow the Lord to commune with you, to love you. If, impress if impressions or directions come, fine. If not, fine. The, the third type of contemplative prayer is meditation upon the creation. Now this is no infantile pantheism, but a majestic monotheism in which the great creator of the universe shows us something of his glory through his creation. The heavens do indeed declare the glory of God and the firmament does show forth his handiwork. 
Psalm 19.1. Evelyn Underhill recommends, Begin with the first form of contemplation, which the old mystics sometimes called the discovery of God and his creatures. So give your attention to the created order. Look at the trees. Really, look at them. Take a flower and allow its beauty and symmetry to sink deep into your mind and your heart. Listen to the birds. They are the messengers of God. Watch the little creatures that creep upon the earth. These are humble acts, to be sure. But sometimes God reaches us profoundly in these simple ways if we will quiet ourselves to listen. There is a fourth form of meditation that is, in some ways, quite the opposite of the one just given. It is to meditate upon the events of our time and to seek to perceive their significance. We have a spiritual obligation to penetrate the inner meaning of events, not to gain power, but to gain prophetic perspective. Thomas Merton writes that a person who meditated on the passion of Christ, but has not meditated on the extermination camps of Dachau and Alkowitz, has not yet fully entered into the experience of Christianity in our time. This form of meditation is best accomplished with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. You must not, however, be controlled by the absurd political cliches and propaganda fed us today. Actually, newspapers are generally far too shallow and slanted to be of much help. We would do well to hold the events of our time before God and ask for prophetic insight to discern where these things led. lead. Further, we should ask for guidance for anything we personally should be doing to be salt and light to our decaying and dark world. You must not be discouraged if in the beginning your meditations have little meaning to you. There is a progression in the spiritual life, and it is wise to have some experience with lesser peaks before trying to tackle the Mount Everest of the soul. So be patient with yourself. Besides, you are learning a discipline for which you have received no training. Nor does our culture encourage you to develop these skills. You will be going against the tide. But take heart. Your task is of immense worth. There are many other aspects of the discipline of meditation that could be profitably considered. However, meditation is not a single act nor can it be completed the way one completes the building of a chair. It is a way of life. You will be constantly learning and growing as you plumb the inner depths.